We return to the book of Mark now after a series, a short series in the book of Jude. We return, we're returning to the book of Mark, and this morning we're in Mark chapter 13. So please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Mark chapter 13. Our passage, which begins in verse 14 is famously known as the passage on the abomination of desolation. What is that? When you hear the abomination of desolation, you might be thinking of some doomsday movies. You might be thinking of these end time predictions and watching the stars to see if we are within a week or two of when the end is here. Before we get to a deeper understanding specifically of what's going on with the abomination of desolation, I must do us all a favor and recap what's been going on in the book of Mark, because that's going to help us understand why Jesus even gives these warnings here in Mark chapter 13. So in the gospel of Mark, the major theme many of you will remember is who is Jesus? The identity of the Christ. There's misunderstanding. The Pharisees, the crowd, and even the disciples don't understand who he is. The disciples come to know that he's the Christ, the Messiah, but they don't understand the implications. And in today's passage, we're going to see that the implications of who he is as the Christ develop into an even deeper, greater description of who Jesus is. And there's this movement toward Jerusalem throughout the book. He starts in Galilee, and then there's the phase of the book where he is en route to Jerusalem, and now we find him in Jerusalem, and with each phase, the opposition and the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders escalates. Jesus goes head-to-head with the religious and the political leaders throughout the book, and they seek to kill him, and he doesn't back down as he calls out their hypocrisy and their self-serving abuse of their positions of spiritual leadership. And then it came to a head, so it seemed, when Jesus rode up to Jerusalem on a donkey as the crowd was proclaiming Hosanna. The king had arrived against the enemies in Jerusalem. Let us pray that as we read our passage now, we would be able to understand it by the Spirit's help, and that our hearts would be soft to know what this passage means for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as finite people with finite understanding, yet we know that what your word says is true and is enough. So we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to understand the complexities and the beauty of this passage. We pray that in it, we would see Jesus exalted as the king who is enthroned in heaven. By your spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear God's word from Mark chapter 13. We'll begin reading in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will not, excuse me, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. Chapter 13 begins in verse 1 with the disciples admiring how beautiful the temple is. And then Jesus says, it will be destroyed. Our immediate context here in Mark 13 is this question that the disciples then ask, when will this destruction of the temple be? And what are the warning signs? We see that in verse four. And Jesus answers throughout chapter 13, on the sermon that covered chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, we, you may recall that there were, there were going to be some people who claimed to be Christ. But Jesus says, do not be led astray by them. There will be wars and rumors of wars, but the end of the temple age is still not yet, even when you hear wars and rumors of wars. And then in verse 8, we see that nations and kings will rise against one another. Earthquakes and famines will spread abroad, but these are just the beginning of the birth pangs. And then in in verse 9 and in verses 12 and 13, it is promised that the Christians will be mistreated by the world's leaders and they will be persecuted and hated by all. We also know that the gospel must go to the Gentiles. And Jesus encourages them, charges them, endure for the end of the temple ages, still not yet, even at all these things. And then we come to our passage in verse 14, and Jesus gives yet another sign. There will be an abomination of desolation before the temple is destroyed. And there will be trials of incredible physical difficulty. We see that in verses 15 through 20. And then there will be additional people who claim to be Christ or a prophet, but they're frauds. We see that in verses 21 through 23 of our passage today. But still, Jesus says, be on guard because even this is not the end. And then in verse 24, Jesus says, but in those days, after that tribulation, we finally see the destruction of the temple described in language of cosmic upheaval. 
And so Jesus will finally answer their question in verses 24 through 27. After teaching them important things to look out for, he says, when you see these things taking place, you know that the destruction is near. We see that in verse 29. When you see these things taking place, you know that the destruction is near at the very gates. And therefore, Jesus' answer in verses 5 through 31 all describe his warnings to the disciples about the destruction of the temple. But what are we reading in particular here with the abomination of desolation? What kind of writing is this? What's the genre? Is it apocalyptic literature? That's a term referring to writings like Daniel and Revelation that have uh, de- depictions of, of the end times. And certainly our passage shares some key elements of apocalyptic literature, especially seeing that it takes the language of the abomination of desolation from an apocalyptic book, Daniel. But its use, we cannot miss. Jesus uses the abomination of desolation as an exhortation to his disciples to warn them. More than to try to encourage speculation. Because some of the apocalyptic themes are missing, like otherworldly journeys and angelic mediators. There are instead 19 imperatives, 19 commands. Jesus is giving a charge in 19 different ways here in our passage. So it's certainly a combination of end-time content and exhortation, but with an emphasis on the practical outworking in the lives of Jesus' hearers. So we must... Set aside our desire for the moment to try to see how does this speak to the end of time and should we be watching for these signs in our world right now? Let's put that on pause. Let's not be speculative. I do think there are things in our passage that absolutely are speaking to the end of time and we will get there. But first we must understand what is being said from the literary and historical context that we're looking at. Jesus says, when you see all these signs, here's the point. Don't be phased. Because God is the one who is in control. So then what is this exhortation about? Finally, I'm going to give you our outline for today. First of all, all these things. The exhortation is about all these things. And we'll define that in a moment. It's about all these things. It's about the abomination of desolation and it's about the enthronement of the Son of Man and that's the structure that we'll be following. So let's look first at all these things and I'm actually gonna jump us to the last paragraph of our passage today to look at what all these things means. So the last paragraph starts in verse 28 and goes through verse 31. In this, the phrase all these things is present. And Jesus is giving an illustration with the fig tree saying, when you see all these things happening, then all these things will take place. He says, consider the fig tree. When its leaves grow and its branches become tender, then you know summer's about to come. Similarly, drawing a parallel, he says, so everything that I have told you between verse five and here." These are the growing of leaves and the softening of the branches. And they're telling you that all these things are about to take place. Now, the NIV, I think, translates verse 29 well. Because there's some flexibility with the word in verse 29, which says uh, in the ESV, it says he is near. But the NIV says it is near. 
I think that is an important translation difference, and I think the NIV gets it right. NIV says, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. But what is it? What are all these things? All these things that are about to happen are the answer to the question that the disciples asked Jesus in verse 4. All these things is a bookend. It's a phrase used at the beginning of our passage, and it's a phrase used at the end of our passage. All the way back in verse 4, the disciples say, when will all these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And what they're referring to there is the destruction of the temple that Jesus had just predicted. So the question at hand is, when is the temple going to be destroyed like you just said, Jesus? And Jesus gives us an answer here in this last paragraph of our passage today. In verse 39, he says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus opens this phrase with truly I say to you. This is an important introduction. When Jesus says truly I say to you, he's speaking with divine authority. And this is a proclamation of divine authority from Jesus. Yes, he always speaks with divine authority, but he sets aside certain sayings with this phrase, truly I say to you. And he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away in verse 31. And this is a beautiful cross-reference to our Old Testament reading today where the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is a true statement for all time. And so we know there was an event within that generation when the temple was destroyed. That event happened in AD 70 when the Roman forces came in and destroyed Jerusalem. I think it's important for us to first and foremost note that this passage is speaking to the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 70. And that's what Jesus was predicting. And so some may ask, but is there anything that has to do with the end of time? Yes, but it's a second step. We'll get there. Let's look at the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation in particular is a puzzling phrase, but it is very clearly taken from the book of Daniel. The abomination of desolation means a a detested thing that desolates or appalls. It can be used of an idol or of a sacrilege. And so when it says here in our verse 14, let the reader understand When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. This is an important call that those who hear this message pause and make that connection. This connection to Daniel is important. Of course, it is disputed. Was this spoken specifically by Jesus or was it Mark's addition? Is it a call to the one who is reading the letter to an audience or is it a call to all who read the book themselves? There's no definite answer to that but it certainly makes the reader pause and say, what is this abomination of desolation? And I think it's very important for us to pick up that this is a reference to Daniel, as Matthew tells us. In Daniel chapter 9, and in chapter 11, and in chapter 12, uh, the abomination of desolation was found originally. And it was fulfilled this promise that there would be an abomination of desolation in the temple, that the temple would be desecrated by this abomination of desolation. Many people say that also had an historical fulfillment in 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes 
went into the temple in Jerusalem and built a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the temple of Yahweh and sacrificed a pig on the temple's altar of incense. That would certainly meet the description of an abomination of desolation. Now, some say that event in particular doesn't fit other elements of of the text, especially the timing. And therefore, they say that the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9 is not fulfilled until Jesus brings it back to us in Matthew, Mark 13. And then its fulfillment is also the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. But it's important that we do know that the historical event signaled by the abomination, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, is what is being referred to. That is the topic of the disciples' question after all. So what specifically was the abomination connected to the destruction of the temple in AD 70? For those who like black and white answers, you will once again be disappointed. There are a variety of options here, but they all are connected to the destruction of the temple. And it's it's reasonable to think that it might be like the desecration of 167 BC when Antiochus, Epiph- Antiochus Epiphanes set up the idol to Zeus and sacrificed the pig. That kind of thing, a, a sacrilege in the holy place. As Matthew tells us, it will stand in the holy place. And as Luke tells us, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation has come near. So there seems to be this military element to this prophecy. So either it could be the Roman army when it set up its battle standard in the temple. That was a sacrilege to the Jews. That could have been the sign, the abomination of desolation. It could have been specifically the entrance of the Roman general Titus when he went into the most holy place of the temple during the destruction of Jerusalem. That might be the abomination of desolation. Other people say that the zealots who were defending Jerusalem, they set up a false high priest Phineas, and that he then was the abomination of desolation because he had no right to be set up as the high priest. But we know that all these things are precursors to that event, the destruction of the temple, where all these things take place. The most important part is that whatever the particular abomination of desolation was, it signaled that these things were indeed upon Israel. Jesus continues with the abomination of desolation by explaining a great tribulation would come upon the people in this time. See this in verses 14 through 20. These are dire descriptions. Flee to the mountains. Now, conventional knowledge would have told people you should run to the city where there's a wall, where there are other people. That was conventional wisdom in those days. But here Jesus is giving specific instruction to his elect to care for them because he knows that the walls of Jerusalem will not withstand the siege of the Roman army. So he says, get out of there. He says, go to the mountains. You have a better chance of survival there. And indeed, some ancient historians write, although we can't take this as hard and fast evidence because they're not inspired authors, but Eusebius and Josephus and historians uh, say that many Jews died during this time. Some say a million Jews died there in Judea and Jerusalem in that siege in 70 AD, but others say that not many Jewish Christians died. And that would be because the Jewish Christians had received an oracle from Jesus to escape, to flee, to not congregate in Jerusalem at this time. 
And so these specific warnings that Christ gave to try to help these people avoid this destruction came in verse 15 and 16 and following. In verse 15, Jesus says, don't go down into the house, but instead go down the exterior stairs. That was common in those houses in those days. If you're up on the roof of your house, take the exterior stairs. Don't even go back in and get your wallet. Take the exterior stairs and go. And then in verse 16, it says, if you're in the field, don't even go back and get your cloak. The cloak is the thing that's going to keep them warm at night up in the mountains, but it's not even worth getting that. You need to get to the mountains right away. There is urgency, and these are dire situations coming upon the people at this time. And then there's warning about how you're going to get up to the mountains because travel is going to be difficult, especially for women who are pregnant, especially if it happens in winter. When the normally dried up creeks swell with rainwater, which would compound the difficulty of getting away from the site of siege. And then in verse 19, this description. In those days, there will be such tribulation as as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. This. This is saying that this is going to be an incredibly difficult, historically difficult time. Some say that we must take this to the T literally and saying, well, we must compare this to what about the Holocaust? Can this then be a reference to the Holocaust? I think that's stretching this language too far. The point here is that this is going to be a historically difficult time. So be on guard. Watch out. The charge again is to be, be watchful. Don't, don't be watchful out of fear. Jesus is not telling them, oh, you should really be shaking in your boots. Instead, they should be watchful out of confidence because the very Savior who is preparing his disciples for this tribulation is the one who's going to carry them through it. So heed his advice. And we see here at the end, Jesus reminds them in verses 20 and 21, God is going to cut this time short. It's not going to last forever. And that's because God cares for his people. For the sake of the elect, for his believers, for the Jewish Christians, and perhaps some Gentile Christians who might have been in the land, Jesus promises that God will limit the length of the difficulty. And sure enough, that siege on Jerusalem did end. And he says there will be another false sign in those days. There'll be another sign. There will be false Christs and false prophets, people who prop themselves up and try to be king. And in fact, we saw from ancient historians, specifically Josephus, that among some of these were a guy named Menahem and a man named Simon Bar-Giora, who tried to set themselves up as kings in these days. These are the false prophets, the false kings who tried to take over the throne and claim themselves to be the Christ. But in his exhortatory nature in this passage, as he is comforting and exhorting and preparing his people, Jesus reminds them that even then, continue to watch, verse 23, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. That phrase, be on guard, sets you up. Something is about to happen. Be on guard. Even when all these things are going on, remember the end is not yet, but be on guard. And finally, we come to it in verse 24. Here's where all these things happen. In verse 24 through 27. This, this paragraph opens with the phrase, after that tribulation, in those days, after that tribulation. After that tribulation means after whatever the specific abomination of desolation and siege is. Here's 
It's still going to be in those days. Here's what happens. Verse 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is it. This is the King who has come to ascend to power with great power and glory. This is the climax of the entire chapter and perhaps of the book of Mark. Of course, we do not leave out Christ's death and resurrection, but they tie, they dovetail here. Because here Christ takes the throne to our ears when we hear the phrase, the Son of Man coming in clouds. We hear a fully developed explanation, a description of the end of time. And indeed it is. We'll get to that. But there's a step before it means the end of time because the Son of Man coming on the clouds meant something before John applied it to the end of time in Revelation. The Son of Man coming on the clouds in Daniel is a reference to enthronement. When Jesus is exalted to his place of power. Yes, I am saying that the Son of Man coming on the clouds has two meanings. One is based in Daniel and one is based in Revelation. And in our context, it's largely Daniel with implications to Revelation. Using the Daniel context, which is so prevalent throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is saying, you're going to see the Son of Man in that day, in this great tribulation. I'm going to be on my throne, and I'm going to execute judgment. Because in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we hear this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Son of man, an important title. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man receives his power and his authority and he begins his judgment in his enthronement. Jesus judges the wickedness of the temple. When Jesus comes on the cloud, when the Son of Man comes on the cloud with great power and glory, we see the temple destroyed as the act of Jesus' judgment against wickedness. In verse 25, there's this cosmic language. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Some say that there were literal cosmic disturbances around the time of 70 AD. But rather than trying to prove that, I think it's more important that we understand that this language, this cosmic language is always, always in the Bible in reference to God's divine judgment on nations. So when you see that the sun is being darkened and the moon is not giving its light and the stars are falling from heavens, this means God is judging a nation for their sin. The undoing of the cosmos always refers to God's impending act of judgment. We see it against Egypt in the book of Exodus and again in Ezekiel. We see it against Babylon in Isaiah 13. We see it against Israel herself in Joel 2 and Amos 8. And that's just naming a few. And here we see the same language of divine judgment is being used to describe Jesus' judgment on wicked Israel and even more on the core of Israel's society, the temple. Even there, in the heart of this nation, God is bringing judgment for their wickedness. And so the temple system is destroyed by the judgment of Christ. 
because you know the temple system was never sufficient anyway. The temple system set up the blood of bulls and goats, which never really took away sins. The men, the priests, were never pure enough to be high priests who truly saved. And the temple veil was torn when Jesus died as a precursor to this great tearing down of the old system that would come a few decades later. And throughout the book, throughout all of Scripture, and especially in Mark, we see this buildup of the hypocrisy and the desecration of the temple itself. In the Old Testament, hypocrisy abounded among the Israelite leaders. And of recent in the book of Mark, the Pharisees have done quite a job of desecrating the temple themselves. And then Jesus describes it in utter desecration with the abomination of desolation. Why all this hypocrisy and desecration of the temple? For this. Because as the temple is destroyed and as the Son of Man comes on the cloud, true authority is established. The ascent of the throne by the true king is mentioned here as he comes on the clouds in power and glory. The old ways are obsolete, destroyed, ineffective, hypocritical, and desecrated. In with the new. The true priest, the true sacrifice, the true king and authority is on the throne. That's why the temple must be done away with, because it does not save. And there's this cosmic dimension. It's not just there in the land. This is the entire economy of religion and salvation being shifted and shaken. The powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. You don't access God by being good or by killing an animal or by giving an offering or by purity rituals or law keeping or Phariseeism. Nor is access to God restricted to a specific location or a building type. Nor is it through a sinful priest. No, all these things have been destroyed. The foundations of the earth shake at this reality. The way to God, the Father, the Almighty is now through one man. The Son of God, the Son of Man who has come on the clouds with all power and authority and takes his place at the right hand of God. And he is how we come to God. Forget the building. Jesus is our means of access. By his grace and powerful sacrifice, he draws sinful people into the very presence of the throne room of God in heaven. The temple has served its function and it was just to foreshadow this fullness in Christ. And all this captured in the phrase, the son of man coming on the clouds. So then how can Jesus say that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Right? If all this is happening in a spiritual cosmic reality, what are they going to see to show that the Son of Man has come on the clouds to his throne at the right hand of the Father? Will they see into the heavens? Will they see, will they see Jesus taking the place of power and authority over false religion? Can this generation that Jesus said was going to see this, can they see those cosmic realities? I'll put it this way. They absolutely can see the evidence of that power. They saw it in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. In its downfall, Jesus has foretold them, look, this is me doing it because I'm taking my place in heaven. And Jesus' own power and authority brought its judgment. So we see Jesus has taken the throne even in this, the specific downfall of the temple. And you see it in the ingathering of God's people from all nations to the church. You see the Gentiles coming in. You see all the nations, the inclusion begun by Jesus himself 
continued in the work of the Apostle Paul who died just two years before the destruction of the temple. And there were many others. But you get to see the end gathering of the Gentiles in great numbers. And that's a sign that Jesus has taken his place because now anyone who has faith in Jesus can come to the Father. So yes, that generation was able to see the Son of Man's great power and glory, as are we. But will not Christ return at the end of time? Yes, he will. He absolutely will. There are grave errors in churches here in America and I'm sure across the world that say that Christ has already returned in 70 AD and that was it and we're living in the end. That is dangerous. That's scary. That's also a little bit disheartening. The language of coming on the clouds was picked up decades later by John because he wrote in Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus is coming and he will come on the clouds in judgment on the nations. Coming on the clouds still will imply on that day his judgment against wickedness. He judged the, the enemies of, the, of Israel in the Old Testament. He judged Israel herself and the temple in AD 70, and he will judge all the world when he comes again. For that day, we long. Some people think that's weird. Why would you long for that day when Christ comes and judges all wickedness? Because for many that will be a day of destruction. And our hearts should be heavy for those people because those are the ones who are not in Christ. Those are the ones who continue to hold on to the religious institutions that they think are going to save them. Those are the ones who hold on to the fact that they think they're going to be good enough to earn a place in God's presence and that they can do it on their own. These are the ones who have refused to submit their hearts to the true king, and they try to be king over their own lives. Those are the ones who fear that last day when Christ will come in judgment. Consider how the, consider how the disciples must have felt. Their very national heritage is being predicted as destroyed. The things that they, their identities have clung on to, their homeland. For those of you who like country music, you know the value of a hometown for many people. An identity, a warmth. Jesus says that is going to be destroyed. Because there's a better identity. There's a better place. And it is in Jesus Christ. common ground for them and for us is that we need to see through the veils of earthly powers. Religiosity, good deeds, saying the right thing, the right type of inclusion, the right type of affirmations. Our goal is to trust in the one true power, the one who is ascended at the right hand of the Father, the judge of the world. See, because if Christ is giving his warning to his disciples here to be on guard and to look out, he's going to carry them through. And if we know that he's coming again, he's going to carry us to that day too. 
He will not let us go. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No powers, no life, no death, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from that love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we look forward to that day and we will face that day with hope because Christ will see us. God will see us on that day. He'll see us in Christ. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. All the judgment that is due to you right now has already been poured out on my son on that cross. Put your faith in that savior. Lay down your own control over what you think makes you a good person and what you think is going to give you value, there is one power and one authority, and it's Jesus Christ. And because we are united to him, we know that if we suffer with him, we also will be glorified with him. I look forward to that day, a day of great rejoicing when we're in his presence. We're reunited with those that we love, and we'll sing the praises of our God, not just with our voices, but with our whole lives for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long to be in your presence. We know that there is a day when you will bring heaven to earth. We know that you're a God of justice, but we know that you're a God who loves your people. And we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you have brought us to Christ, that you have opened our hearts and our minds. And for those who may have not yet submitted themselves to Christ, would you by your spirit draw them now that they might also see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory and be filled with joy, not dread. Because in Christ, our sins are forgiven and the wrath is taken. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.